Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning, and it looks like we're headed for a terrific weekend. I know we've all been kind of uh, getting frustrated with the weather. You know, we this time of year we get some bad weather. It's not unusual, but not such long stretches. Usually we get some cold weather, even some substantial snow, but then it warms up. But we've had a couple, two, three weeks of weather that has stayed below normal. We've got a above normal precipitation, which we really do need, but it's affected our outdoor activities. And I'm hearing grumblings and I'm hearing fishermen. What do I do to catch fish? Well, we're going to talk about that in a couple different segments later on today. We're going to kind of go after, well, how is this affecting the fish? What can you do differently? And we're looking at some warming weather and changes. We're going to get a few nice days. I mean, Today's going to be nice in a couple 70s and it cools, but it's going to be more normal. So we should see spring patterns starting to emerge. We're going to talk a little bit of turkey hunting later today. It's in full swing. And don't think it's too late to get started uh, turkey hunting because, uh, because it's not. There's a long season, and a lot of times the later weeks are better, and you can buy over-the-counter licenses now in Colorado. So we just have a lot. We're even going to do a segment on cooking and using grills and smokers later in the show. We just have a lot to cover. Follow us on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and you'll a lot of times know what's coming up. Let's go right to the phones. Joining us, and I guess we could say back by popular demand, is Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Terry. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. You know, we had John last week. I've been wanting to get some dog training, dog interaction type type segments back on and you came on and did one last week and boy we got a wonderful positive reaction so we brought you back this week next week we have a short show because of the uh the um nfl draft but i'm hoping we're going to get you on on a pretty regular basis because you sure brought a lot to the program now you're with uh hideaway kennels and you're located located at rocky mountain roosters is that right that's right yep and if you want his website, by the way, you can just go to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook, and there's a post that he was going to be on today, and the the, the uh, link is right in that post. Ben, last week we talked about, you talked about if you want to get a dog, you know, have a plan and know a vet. You went through a lot of things you have to kind of checklist through. Well, So now I'm getting a dog. You wanted to come on today and say, you know, there's things you're going to need. And you wanted to kind of talk about that. Why don't you kind of start taking us through that? Yeah, we, we did. We, we talked about that. And what we wanted to go over was is it, it's once you find a breeder, once you got your vet appointment, what are you going to need to bring that dog home? And, um, and just have a good plan of equipment you need for the house, bringing in a puppy and, and making sure it's the right equipment for sure is, is something you want to do. So kind of start us out. Take us through the list. What are some yeah. of the first things you're going to need? Yeah, so we, you know, like what I like to do when I get a puppy home is I, I first want to start off with a good collar, you know, and it, it's just a snap button on collar or buckle collar. Um, I like, it's a product called the Duralon collar, and um, I usually get them in hunter orange, so that way if they come off, it looks good on the dog because we're hunt, talking hunting dogs, but also if it comes off, you can find it. But the Duralon collars, what I like about them is that it's a nylon webbing collar, and um, 
the reason why I like them is if you get mud on it, if it gets dirty, if they get into a mess of something out in the woods, you can clean those, you can dishwash them. They clear off bacteria really well compared to just the cotton or nylon collars that um, that you see a lot of people have. They'll get mud and dirt on them, and it actually can rub up on the neck and cause an infection on there for the dog. So that's the first thing I like is a good collar. Um, the other one to go along with that is a leash or, and, you know, six foot leash. And then another one we like is a check cord and that's, um, that's the same material, but it's about a 20 foot long check cord that we use with puppies. It lets them go off and explore, lets them kind of search. Then you can bring them back to you, um, and, and pet them up and love them. But it's a good thing to start off with. Those three things are the first things I really like to look at, um, to start with. There's obviously more, but those are some of the first things. Yeah. Now, as far as the leash, you, you need a six-foot yeah. leash because if you're going to go in areas that are restricted, you can't use your check – your uh, I'm sorry, your check cord. Check cord, but, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people try to do that, and they you know they, their interaction with other people then gets a little bit confrontational. So, you, you know, use them in the right places. But that check cord is really important to let that dog feel like he's got some room to roam, isn't it? It is. It is. And you brought up a good point. You know, like I'll use my leash if I'm in town, but if I'm out in the woods or I'm out in my training area, that's where I use my check cord. You, you obviously don't want to be walking down a sidewalk near a road with a 20 foot check cord and that dog moving around everywhere. So um, really a six foot is good for town. Check cord is good for when you're out in the field training. So another thing when you're talking about the collars and things, and maybe you're going to get to this, but you also talked about harnesses and not to use them or use them correctly. Tell me about that. Yeah, we get, you know, a lot of people will buy a harness on a puppy because they, they can out muscle the dog and they feel like they're getting direction from the dog. And what ends up happening is they start getting that dog to pull more because the dog starts, as it starts muscling up, starts pulling more and pulling more and pulling more. And ultimately how you put muscle on a sled dog is by having a harness. So really, the, the harnesses get so misused, and we see so many people buy them where they put them on and then they can muscle the dog. Well, the mu- dog starts pushing back and you start getting some restriction, and pretty soon they start looking like a land, land um, excuse me, like a muscle worker, you know, or a linebacker, because they've got so much muscle built up from it. So really, the idea of a harness, if you look into it, is you put it on there and you can kind of move their body a little bit with you, but you want them focused on you with the tree or you with the reward compared to trying to out muscle them with a harness. So really we see so many harnesses be misused that they, um, they let the dog walk, you know, five feet in front of them and pull them and they're just building muscle on that dog to pull more. So you really, if you buy one of these products, you want to look into how do I use it correctly and, um, and make sure you're not creating a problem for yourself a year or two down the road by starting off with one of those products. Uh, when when do you – I know occasionally you you will use a harness, but what, is there a type of yeah. activity or type of dog that you do use a harness? You know, I in the bird dog world, we really don't. Um, I You know, I mean, because typically why we like to use um, just a regular collar and a leash is when we're moving with them, we're creating pressure points on their neck. So if I want to go right and, and I pull on my leash, that puts a pressure on the left side of the dog's neck. And, and the dog learns to turn with me because we're cueing off the neck muscles. So really, if you have a bird dog, I prefer just to start them off with, you know, just a normal leash and collar. I'm, I'm, I personally don't use harnesses because I'm not going to ever cue that muscle ever down the road. And I really don't do any training now that's not relevant to two years or a year down the road from the dog. Because what I'm doing today is relevant for tomorrow, not for today, because you're trying to set up what you're working on next. 
those are great points. Now, what are some of the other things I'm going to need? Do I need uh, something to keep the dog in or a, a, a crate or a dog kennel or something? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we really like crates. Um, you know, and Terry, we talked earlier um, in the week about dog crates and being in vehicles, you know, so really you want a crate in your house and a crate in your vehicle. Um, everybody thinks it's great to have their dog in the front seat. It's great to have a passenger, but just like a kid, it, it, you know, if they're in that front seat and you get an accident, they're going through the windshield, you know? And so really if we have them in a crate in the house and a crate in the vehicle, one in the house, it's preventing them from wandering around and getting into something that they can get in trouble with. Um, and two, in the vehicle, it keeps them safe and restricted into that crate in case there is an accident. Your dog's not going through the windshield and trying to run off, you know, or, or trying to somebody catch them after that point. Is it is there a, is our techniques that you need to use to get the dog used to a crate or to train them to yeah. accept it? Yeah, so you never want to use a crate as a punishment. Instead, what I like to do is treat them as a reward. So I'll take a, a treat get them near there and um, throw the treat in there, tell them kennel as I throw it. And then they go in and they get a treat and you start, start off really slow with that motion of them getting used to it. Some people will feed their dog in a crate, which is great. Also, you just want it to be a positive experience. And obviously you're, you're putting them in a crate for a short amount of time when you start off so they get used to it. But um, it brings up another thing. Like you, you don't want to put stuff in their crate that they, that they can't, that you only want to put stuff in there. They can chew and digest. You don't want to put something in there that, like a t-shirt and then they chew it and they've got that in their stomach and then you got a problem. So you still need to be a step ahead on the crate training of what you're putting in there. You want to make sure there's toys that they can't digest and get in trouble with. So. Now you, you mentioned using a treat to lure them in. Are there certain dog yeah. treats, uh, types of treats that you recommend or that you use in different situations? Yeah. I mean, like we use the, like everybody else just the classic mini milk bones are one we use. And then, we also like these Bill Jack treats. They, they've got a liver flavor one. Um, the dogs smell those, and, and they just get super excited about them, and it keeps them focused on on that treat with the smell. So I, I like those. The Bill Jack ones are a little smaller. Um, you don't want to do a big treat when you're training because that takes them longer to digest, and you can lose some timing in your training. So just something small, something quick that they get a quick reward out of is really a good thing for them. Now, all these things we're talking about, are they available at most outdoor stores, or where can you get them? I, right, yeah. I mean, you can get them almost anywhere now. A lot of outdoor companies, stores have dog treats, leashes, um, anywhere. You know, I mean, it's, dogs are so popular right now, and which is great that a lot of places have picked them up, you know. So. I, I know Jax is one of our sponsors. I think they carry a pretty good line of stuff. I think they do. In fact, I think I bought one of my first retrieving dummies ever I ever bought in my life for one of my first dogs there. So <laughs> I hope they still have the products they have because it was a great, great place for me in college to run over there and grab dog training stuff. So, well, th- th- I'm sure they'll appreciate that. Now, more stuff you yeah, need. Sure. You talked about th- you talked about things like clickers and retrieving dummies. Yeah. Where do I go with that type of stuff? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things within that realm that, that I like to talk about. The the one tree I forgot to talk about that we really like are the Kongs. Um, they're an industrial rubber. Um, again, it goes back to what we talked about with with the collars is those Kongs, you can bleach them, you can clean them. And that's one thing a lot of people don't think about is they don't disinfect their dog's treats and they're just gaining bacteria and gaining things that can cause you some stomach problems in your dog. So you want to get a treat of something you can clean and rinse off and bleach and throw in the dishwasher so those kongs work really good 
um, you can stuff treats in them. You can put some paste they have in there to occupy your dog in the crate too. But that's the first other treat I forgot about the, um, the clickers and treats. I, I like the little clickers. Um, again, I use those bill Jack treats with the clickers and the clickers are cheap. I mean, you can get them anywhere for a dollar or two and they work well. Um, as far as the retrieving dummies, the product I really like is, um, it's called a Dokken and it's, it's a shape of a bird. And um, it's got it helps the dog learn to carry the the bird by the body, and I, I really like those. Um, it gives the dogs confidence. They're weighted to so the weight of a bird, so it gets them used to carrying the weight of the bird. Um, you can put some injectables in them so they have some scent, and just a really good product to have uh, for training your dog on the trees. Any other before we maybe talk about a couple things that you might not want them to have or don't get, we did talk yeah. about harnesses already. Anything else yeah. that you want them to have or they need to get that maybe we skipped over? Yeah, you know, I mean, the one that, that we really we pay attention to is dog food. You know, it's one of the, the cheapest things, the most expensive thing you can spend on a dog. But really, you want if you're working these dogs and, and you're out hiking in the summer, you know, you were talking about weather in Colorado. Uh, our our you know outdoor activities increase so much you want to make sure you're getting a food that that's a, a sporting dog food a dog that's a food that's made for dogs that are going to be out hiking hunting and training because just like me and you your calorie intake goes up so much when you're when you're hiking and moving and and the boy the dogs go through the same thing so that's that's one um that i really think people need to pay attention to is is their dog food and that mostly would come from your breeder of what they recommend because they'll know the line of dogs better than anybody. So now, before we move on to some maybe one or two yeah. things you don't you don't want people to get, you brought up a great point about getting the dog in shape, the calorie intake. You know, we right. see this all the time. We have a mantra on the show that we say, "Don't get ready for hunting, stay ready for hunting." And do you see it right. a lot where the dogs are in tip-top shape because you trained them, but then the hunter isn't? We do. We do. And, um, it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, obviously we want everybody to be in shape and everybody to be healthy, but it's, it's the worst thing you can do is put all this time and money and effort and getting your dog in shape. And then you can't hike more than an hour. You know, I mean, we're blessed in Colorado. We have that early grouse season, you know, and you can go chase ptarmigan at, you know, 11,000, 10,000 feet. And, uh, if you're going to push your dog that hard, you want to make sure you're in shape also. I mean, the last thing you want to do is get up and be chasing ptarmigan and blow, you know, blow a muscle out because you weren't in shape. And then somehow you've got to get down the mountain and somebody has got to get your dog down the mountain. So it's, it's really a timing issue as well as for, for the human as as the owner, as the the dog of making sure you're both in shape, you're both mentally and physically getting ready for that hunting season. Now, Ben, we're almost out of time here, but I know one thing I want to bring up, you brought up no rope toys. Tell me why. Right. Yeah, so the one thing with road toys we see a lot of is dogs will go out in the backyard with them or their play area and they'll shake them just to get the effect of the rope toy. And, and what that turns into, kind of we talked about last week, was it becomes a possession issue for them. It becomes a habit later in life that they get a bird and they want to shake it because they like the reward of that rope toy. The other thing with the rope toys of why I don't personally like them is they, they, they collect a lot of bacteria and a lot of dirt and a lot of mess. And so back to what I was talking about on some of those treats, you, you can disinfect. You want to make sure, you know, obviously you're disinfecting your dog bowl. It's the same with your treats. So those are things to pay attention to. And before I forget, the one thing I forgot to, to mention to you when we are talking about training dummies and all these tools for, for working dogs is you want to make sure you put them in a place your dog can't reach them. 
So you don't want to have your retreating dummy just lying on the floor and then they can take it around and bury it and, and shake it and do the things we talk. We don't want them doing so because that's what's what they're going to do when they hunt. So you want to make sure you have all those training tools either on top of the fridge, on top of the gun safe, away from where the dog can't get to them. And those are just your special training time treats with those dogs to go out. So it's the first time they've seen it and they're super excited about getting that, that training dummy. Ben, we are out of time, but obviously you and I could go on for hours about this. We are going to have yeah. you back on. we got the draft coming up, so maybe a couple of weeks, but we'll get this scheduled regularly. In the meantime, if Great. people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Yeah, the best way is through the webpage, just at hideawaykennels.com, and we'll get back to you. Um, email is the preferable way to get a hold of us, and we'll, we'll surely get back to you. All right. Hey, thanks again for a great segment, Ben. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you, sir. It was a blast as always. You have a great weekend. We'll talk to you later. You bet. Ben Garcia from Hideaway Kennels. What a resource. We're running a little behind, so I want to get to the people on Parks and Wildlife because we've got a lot of great things to cover right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Locations up and down the front range they can supply all your outdoor needs let's go right to the phones and joining us from colorado parks and wildlife is travis duncan good morning travis hey morning terry you know there's a type of recreation area in colorado that with all the people getting out everything is seeing more people our parks are seeing more the trails are seeing more the bike paths the the snowmobile trails the cross country everything's seeing more use but there's a very special type of area that was dedicated and was set aside for conservation and for certain activities. And they started seeing a lot more use and people really not understanding who could use them and what activities were allowed. And that was our state wildlife areas. So Parks has made some changes and how you can get up a, a pass or a permit to use those. But first, why don't you kind of tell us what is a state wildlife area? So state wildlife areas um, are, are special areas designed to, to protect wildlife habitat. They're, they're acquired using hunter and angler dollars for that purpose of conserving wildlife habitat and providing wildlife-related recreation. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife manages more than 350 SWAs uh, for that purpose. And, and like you said, Terry, um, in, in the past few years, but especially in the past year with, with the pandemic and more folks getting outside, these areas have seen just a huge increase in visitation. Now, in state wildlife areas, um, they're not state parks, and they don't have the same uh, type of access as far as what type of activities. But there, you do have to have you do have to have a permit or a license to use them. Is that right? That's right. So, so you need uh, either a hunting or fishing license, a, a valid hunting or fishing license, to access. Uh, these these areas and that's that's because it's like when you go into a state park that's your entrance fee those areas are are purchased and maintained through hunter and angler dollars um, so so the one change that is coming May 1st is that there, now there is another option for folks um, unwilling to purchase a hunting or fishing license that they can get the new SWA pass uh, so that pass can be purchased uh, the same way you could same ways and and locations that you could purchase a hunting or fishing license now, so if I want to go to a state uh, uh, wildlife area like, uh, say, Bodecker or Lon Hagler are pretty close to my, my where I live, I'll go there and fish once in a while. I have to have my fishing license on me to be there. Or if I'm just hiking around there, and you have to 
we'll get to a minute, understand what uses are allowed. But if I'm going to take advantage of that area, I have to have that. But starting May 1st, I can get this new permit. What's the cost of this new permit? So it's the same cost as a annual resident uh, annual resident fishing license, and that was a you know a Colorado Parks and Wildlife Working Group took took a look at what would be equitable and considered fair in a, a you know in terms of price. So it's that thirty six dollars and eight cents plus habitat the habitat stamp fee. So an SWA pass is going to run you like forty six oh eight or forty seven dollars around there. And if you think you're going to fish at all, you just get a fishing license, and you don't need the pass, right? That's right. A fishing license does everything that the SWA pass would do, except you can actually fish. So I would definitely encourage folks to consider getting a fishing license if, you know, if they're wanting to visit a state wildlife area. And these, these areas are, are – yeah, go ahead, Terry. Well, no, I, I was, I'm going to let you finish. But I was just going to say the other thing people need to understand, though, unlike a parks pass where I put the sticker in my car and my whole carload of people can drive in, every individual using a state wildlife area – has to have a, a license or a pass, right? That's right. Yeah, you need to have that on you when you go in. That's your. That's essentially your pass to to be there legally. Now, a lot of people don't understand the uses of these, and they're going to be changing. I know you guys are taking a hard look at what they should be used for. And in the past, the use of a lot of these areas was defined. Now, like you said earlier, the money to set this property aside and maintain it comes from fishing and hunting licenses and it's meant to be wildlife conservation and hunting and fishing type recreation but other recreation is allowed but it can vary from state wildlife area to state wildlife area like a lot of them don't allow bikes they're not bike paths you can't go on it with bikes are are there going to be revisiting some of the usage activities allowed is that going to change in the future yeah, so so phase one, I guess of of you know this working group that was convened to look at look at this issue and the increased visitation and um, we're seeing in our state wildlife areas was was to look at the creation of this pass. But phase two is to go through those 350 plus individual state wildlife area properties and and look at what activities are occurring, what kind of conflicts are occurring uh, that are impeding wildlife related activities and recreation and and figure out what's to be done there. I mean it. It solves or addresses one problem, Terry, in that now everyone who visits a state wildlife area we're ensuring is contributing, uh, you know, they're getting their pass uh, to, to be there, to legally be there. But but part two is to really address just the huge amount of increase in visitation we're seeing and, and making sure we're, we're protecting wildlife and wildlife habitat. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we want people outdoors. Colorado is an incredible state. I lived in two states in my life minnesota then in colorado for the last 40 years actually almost and um there's a great outdoor population here people love the outdoors and we don't want to inhibit that we want to enhance that but in order to do that you need to maintain resources so they need to know that the hunting and fishing license money and now this past money goes back to those state wildlife areas to maintain those but because they're being maintained for conservation and those type of activities they're going to be there's going to be restrictions. I think probably the best thing is go to the website and there's probably a current list of what you can do at any particular state wildlife area. But make sure you stay in touch because that'll probably be updated. Would that would you say that's fair? Definitely, yeah. There's the there's the there's the website CPDW website where where each SWA has a little write up about activities allowed, and then there's also more information in the the annual recreation lands brochure. And so 
that rec lands for sure is something, you know, we'll be updating with, with any new restrictions and, and things like that that come out, as well as those individual SWA um, sites on, on CPW's website. So if folks are going out to the state wildlife area, check out the area, check out what wildlife is there and what habitat it's protecting uh, just to ensure the activities you're going to be engaging in aren't, aren't interfering with that. I think we're out of time, but I think the message Travis, we really want to put out there is that these state wildlife areas are there for a particular reason. We want you to use them. Go outdoors. First, make sure you have a license or a pass for every person that's out there and understand what activities are allowed and then enjoy them, wouldn't you say? That's right. Definitely. All right, Travis, thanks for joining us. That's all good information. I hope we've cleared some of that up for people. Definitely. Thank you, Terry. You bet. Travis Duncan from Parks and Wildlife. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk turkey hunting right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Kyle, do you know I kind of like this band? Yeah, I had an idea. All right, the Eagles. To me, the best American band that ever played. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. I know a lot of you are hanging on to get some current fishing information. I do want to tell you that... Uh, Karen posted the latest Parks and Wildlife Fishing Report to our Facebook page yesterday. It just came out yesterday, and that's at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. A lot of good information there on what's happening, including the stocking report and some tips. And in the second hour of the show, both Nate Felinski and Chad Lachance are going to join us, and we're going to talk current fishing uh, techniques and what's going on. But right now, we're going to go to the phones, and joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Jared Lamb, and we're going to talk some turkey hunting. Good morning, Jared. Morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing good, and I don't know if there is a more passionate outdoor group than people once they get into turkey hunting. Do you? I could not agree more. Yeah, it's uh, it's an addiction. It's a good an addiction, but uh, yeah, when when once you uh, once you get into it, it's it's hard to let it go, and it's pretty darn neat stuff. I remember one time many years ago, uh, an official with the Wild Turkey Federation, I said, I said, what do you tell people who want to get into turkey hunting? He said, don't, it will ruin your life. But yeah. <laughs> I couldn't but agree is. more. My, uh, yeah, my first one was with a guy from Division of Wildlife at that time, Jim Bolger, and uh, he cursed me from that day. And yeah, it's, it's an addiction. So, and, and, you know, and tell us, I mean, I'll, I think it's so addicting because of, you get into this animal's comfort zone, you're communicating with it, and everything else you see in nature. But tell us why it's addicting to you. What gets you fired up about it? I think the cool thing about turkey hunting is it's, you know, virtually the only species that we're able to hunt in the spring. And so um, we're hunting it during the, the breeding time, and so we're getting to see the courtship courtship displays of these toms and attracting hens and gobbling, and it, it's just amazing to watch the birds themselves. Plus, I mean, you're in nature uh, during the springtime, you know, grass is starting to turn green and birds are starting to, other birds are doing their breeding and courtship. And it's just cool to see, just see wildlife during the springtime. It's pretty awesome. Oh, and the things you'll see when you're in a stealth mode, like you have to be to hunt turkeys, is just amazing. Because I'll tell you, what, one, one guy told me once, he said, if turkeys had a sense of smell, we'd never harvest one. Because their other senses are so sharp. So sharp. So you really have to work to get in their comfort zone. We're going to talk a little bit about how to do that and some of the tips. But first, I want to talk about the opportunities. You know, if you go back 
25 years ago, there was just over-the-counter, and there was a very limited turkey population in Colorado, and the avid turkey hunters might put in for the draw, but then they'd go and do most of their hunting out of state. But, boy, that's not necessary anymore. We've seen the turkeys really just, um, the population has exploded. You can get a license over-the-counter. There's just a lot of different opportunities and different birds, aren't there? I couldn't agree more, yeah. Um, I think Colorado is a very underrated turkey state because you don't typically associate turkeys with mountains. Um, But in all reality, I mean, yeah, we've got basically two different species of turkeys here in Colorado. We have the Rio Grande turkey, which are located mostly east in the eastern part of the state um, along our rivers. Then we got the Merriams, which are generally our mountain birds um, on the western part of the state. And so, you know, there's a wide range of turkeys, whether you want to be chasing them in the river bottoms, you know, along the Arkansas or the South Platte, or if you want to go hit the hills and, um, you know, hunt them all the way up to 8,500 feet in elevation, you can do it all, and it's really cool. So Now, the, the season started oh, uh, about a week or so, maybe a little more ago, um, but it goes for, I think, almost till the end of May. There's still lots of opportunities. It's not too late to get out there, is it? No, and I, I really encourage people, you know, it, it starts on the 10th, or this year it started on the 10th of April, and it runs, all, like you said, all the way through the end of May. Um, and, and just because we're getting through into May now, um, the, the turkey hunting only gets better. Um, you know, generally the, the mature birds, their hens are starting to go off and, and lay eggs and nest, and so they're looking for other hens. And uh, from a hunting aspect, that makes it actually a little easier to hunt those birds because they're, they're more susceptible to being called in to decoy setups and stuff like that. So actually the hunting only gets better with this long season. So it's, it's a really good opportunity for people. Is there a big difference when you're going after the Rios or the Miriams up in the mountains, um, the Rios in the river bottoms? Is there just, is there a, di- a totally different approach or do you do a lot of the same things? You know, I think, I think it, and it, everyone has kind of their own style, but, you know, there's definitely some differences in their tur- in those in the different types of turkeys. Um, it seems like the, the the river bottom birds are a little more vocal, um, especially in the mornings. And you know, they're more concentrated because they're along the river, so they might be a little easier to hunt because they're easier to find. However, I mean, we have tons of public land on the west, and um, the, the Merriams are there. You got to be willing to put in some time and. Um, actually, you know, go, go look and you're probably going to have quite a few mornings where you don't, you don't find birds, but when you do find them, um, generally they're going to be in a very similar area again, and, uh, you should have a good opportunity. So, um, they're, they're definitely both very huntable populations, but there's a little bit different tactics, I'd say. Has, has this uh, cooler spring with all the snow, has it affected the birds much? Do you know? You know, I, I think the river bottom birds, um, not not as much, but I think our, our Merriams especially, they, they chase the snow line throughout the year. And so um, just like our elk and our deer, they, they start moving up in elevation as that snow line starts receding. They're chasing that, that green up. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I know personally some of my spots that traditionally have birds at this time of year, they, they just don't have the, the turkeys yet because that snow just hasn't melted. So, um, yeah, I'd say that the spring has altered them a little bit, but... Um, there's still plenty of season left. And turkey hunting, I think, also is a great transition for somebody who maybe has done a little upland game, uh, some pheasants or rabbits or some doves, 
And this is kind of maybe you don't want to take the full step, the big game yet, but it really is a great transition and a great way to introduce family members, isn't it? Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, it's it's the you know the license. It's it's basically thirty one dollars for a resident turkey license or sixteen dollars for a youth license. So it's a good intermediate between the small game and like you said, the big game. Um, and yeah, it's for for family members that maybe aren't ready for that step. Turkeys are a great option because during the spring, generally, you know, you're starting to warm up and it's just exciting when you hear that gobble and you see the those birds start to strut. It's exciting and it really gets people into the outdoors and, and hunting turkeys is a great way to start. We're almost out of time, but if there's one mistake there or maybe one or two mistakes that you see turkey hunters make a lot, what kind of advice would you give them? I, I'd say my biggest advice is just do your homework. And, and when I say do your homework, that starts way before the season. Um, you know, the, the technology of being able to use maps now and really look online um, and then hitting the ground and, and putting the miles on your boots, I, I think those are those are key. The more time you spend in the off season, the better success you're going to have um, during the season. And I guess one more thing that I'd like to add is, you know, turkeys are very vocal, and we all love to hear the gobbles, and we love to chase the gobbles. But if you know that somebody else is, is working a bird or hunting a bird, I just ask that you be respectful because there's some time and investment that goes into that, and you got to let other people have a chance as well. So, you know, and even if there's nobody else working a bird, you can call too much yourself. One of the things, the calling sports, you can get so enamored, but you can also overdo it, right? Oh, I, yes, very much so. I think, especially in turkey hunting, we you know we love to to, to hit the calls and we love to say we called that bird in and. Turkeys are smart, and they figure that out really quick, and especially as the season goes on, um, calling is, I think, sometimes detrimental to to hunts because they know that that's not a real bird. Um, So, yeah, I I think calling is one one of the other big mistakes. And the last thing I want to leave people with, too, is that um, we talk about getting ready for hunting. Know your firearm. Know your capabilities with it because you don't want to take shots that are outside where you may just maim a bird that you won't get. You want to know what your limits are. Now, you can hunt turkey with almost any shotgun if you understand the limits of that shotgun, or you can get some specific guns and shot for shotguns that will extend it, but you really need to understand it, don't you? Yes, very much so. And like you said, you can use just about any shotgun for turkey hunting, but you got to know your limits. And turkeys are an extremely tough bird, um, they, they can withstand a lot, and so you really have to know your gun. And if you're shooting chokes that are more open, your, your range that needs to be a little closer because you need to make those ethical shots. And um, that's all about doing your homework and patterning your shotgun for the season, and um, it, it'll really pay off for your success and the, the ethical hunting of the bird. Well, Jared, we're out of time, but I think the message, um, I mean, we could go on and on and talk about the types of calls and how good you have to be and what types of decoy setups, but I think if you stop by a local sporting goods store, like we have Jack's up here, they can help you out. There's a lot of stuff online, but the message really is to get out because there's lots of season left and probably the best hunting of the year, right? Very much so. Yep. The best hunting of the year is, is yet to come. And, you know, you, you can't learn by sitting, sitting on the couch. You got to get out there and you got to make the mistakes. And every time is learning experience. So I encourage people to get out and, and give it a try. All right, Jared, thanks so much for coming on. Obviously, you enjoy the turkey hunting. It is a passionate sport. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Terry. You have a good rest of your day. You too. Have a great weekend. That's Jared Lamb from Colorado Parks and Wildlife.
We're going to take a timeout, and we come back. We're going to be joined by the folks from Ducks Unlimited on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear and 104.3 The Fan. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Ducks Unlimited is Pete X. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm great. I'd love to have you on. And you, as you know, and I've said over the years, I'm a huge supporter of our affinity groups. I think they bring so much to the outdoors, whether it's Ducks Unlimited, Trout Unlimited, the Mule Deer Foundation, the Wild Turkey Federation, all these have such a great place in our outdoors. And the affinity groups are so probably more important than ever right now because we're seeing so many new people get out into the outdoors. And whether they're walking, hiking, just viewing wildlife, or getting into one of the hunting sports, there's so many resources available. And we need to maintain those resources. And probably Ducks Unlimited has been as successful as any affinity group of really maintaining the resource, haven't they? That's true, Terry. You know, Ducks Unlimited has been around since 1937, and throughout North America, we've conserved almost 15 million acres since its inception. But last year was a challenging year, but thanks to a lot of generous support from people like yourself um, and a lot of local supporters, we were actually able to impact more than 606,000 acres of wetland habitat, which not only benefit the waterfowl, but certainly wildlife and people as well. No, you're absolutely right, because good riparian areas, wetlands, um, it benefits all wildlife, and it's good for the planet. It's good for all of us. And I, and you've got a banquet coming up, because we're going to talk about that in a minute, because you need to raise money. Now, I know it was a challenging year, because a lot of the groups, Ducks Unlimited included, weren't allowed to have banquets or fundraisers because you couldn't gather people together. Is that changing? Are you going to be able to have banquets now? Do you have one coming up? Is that going to be a public event? Yes, it's going to be a public event. It's going to be an in-person event, and it's going to be one of the first. And it also helps, you know, spring and get everybody back together to help support our cause. When is that banquet going to be? Terry, uh, we did change the day and date, but it's going to be Thursday, May 13th, and we're going to hold that at the Fort Collins Hilton on Prospect in Fort Collins. Okay, and, and there's information online about that? Yes. Uh, you can find all the information at fortcollinsdu.org. Now, if I go to a Ducks on Lemon meeting, and I have been to them, of course, because I'm a member, I try to join different affinity groups for a period of time, then I switch to others and try to rotate through, and I've been to many meetings. Tell people what they'll find and what they'll get if they go to a Ducks Unlimited banquet. Oh, right now we have, we get such good local support from our good sponsors like Otterbox, uh, Horse and Dragon, New Belgium, No Cold Party Bus. Uh, we even get national sponsors like Vortex, uh, WorkSharp, uh, SportDog. You know, we get it's, it's just a great thing to do. We've got a wonderful silent auction, uh, probably merchandise that you won't find anyplace else. We've got a great live auction with a bunch of great trips and some merchandise that you have. And, of course, for every ticket you buy, you get your uh, one-year Ducks Unlimited membership as well as great food. Uh, and great camaraderie. 
Well, you know, and that brings me back to the point about people getting out into uh, to sports and hunting sports and things. We're seeing people go back to hunting again or taking it up for the first time in their life. And an affinity group attending a banquet or a meeting of something like Ducks Unlimited, getting the, the um, resources, the magazines, getting to know the people can just accelerate your ability to learn and really enjoy some of these activities, can't it? Absolutely. And uh, you can find a lot of information on ducks.org. Uh, we've got a great application as well uh, that you can download from there that will give you uh, hunting times, sunrise, sunset. You can find a bunch of other uh, events in Colorado. Uh, it is right now banquet season, so check that to find uh, additional events around uh, the state. Well, and the other thing, too, you're going to go there and rub elbows with avid waterfowl hunters. And when you do that, you're going to make friends. You're going to get tips while you're there. You might find a hunting buddy that will mentor you or get you into the sport. I see that happen all the time because you're going to find you have like interests in the outdoors. And, boy, if you do, that just takes you to a new level. I'm such a huge supporter of that in our affinity groups and what they can do. Why don't you tell people, again, when the banquet is and how if they have to pre-register and how they can attend? Right. Pre-register is very important uh, because seating is limited. Uh, last year, we did sell out, uh, so the earlier the better. Our Ducks Unlimited Banquet is Thursday, May 13th at the Fort Collins Hilton. Our doors open at 530, uh, and you can find all that information at fortcollinsdu.org. All right. Thank you, my friend, and good luck in a successful banquet. Great organization. You do a lot for the outdoors. Thanks for joining us today, Pete. Thank you, Terry. We always appreciate your support and everybody else's as well. All right. Thank you so much. And I, before we go to a quick break here, and Nate Zielinski is going to join us for fishing, if you're like so many people, either new to the outdoors or returning to the outdoors or you're wanting to learn a new outdoor activity, the affinity groups are so important right now because they're not only going to introduce you to people that have like interests that you can spend time with when you attend meetings or get the resources online or the magazines, but you're going to be giving money to causes that will act as a con conservation to the exact activity you want to take part in. The, the you know Obviously, we talked about the wetlands for the ducks, but you're going to see uh, pheasants forever developing habitat and and helping you know the birds to regenerate out out there. We talked about the turkey wild turkey federation turkey hunting. We talked early. There was a substantial stocking that's given us great turkey hunting in Colorado. And there's the elk foundation, the mule deer foundation. Pick the one that suits your activity, or maybe a couple. There's the fly fishing federation, trout unlimited. There's a the walleye club there's bass clubs pick whatever couple that suits you and belong and become part of our outdoor resource conservation you know the outdoorsmen were the original conservationists they're the people who really first wanted to conserve the resources the north american model is that the hunter and the angler pay for most of the wildlife preservation in the united states even for the people who don't hunt they get to take advantage and do wildlife watching and those type of things so just you know take a look at some of those you're going to find out they're really going to help you enjoy the outdoors 
Speaking of enjoying the outdoors, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, Nate Zielinski is going to join us, and I'll bet he's got a lot of great fishing tips right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan.